Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians 3 as a starting point this morning. 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. And let me read this to you and just take in how Paul is expressing thanks for the congregation, the gathered people there in Thessalonica who received this letter. Verse 6, the apostle writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what? Thanksgiving, can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Church, in this small section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is simply expressing thanksgiving to God for this congregation. He's actually doing what your elders in this congregation do weekly. He is praying for them and he is rejoicing over them. Let me show you what else he says and what else he does in that regard in Philippians. Turn back to your left a little ways to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 12. Because this would also reflect what your pastors, your elders do here at Sovereign Grace. When we consider what God's doing in you and through you in this church and in this community. In verse 12, Paul writes here that, He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out or cultivate your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights In the world. Now, he's rejoicing in their witness. He's rejoicing in the work of God in them that's coming through them. And then he says, Here's why I can see that. Because, verse 16, you're holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, You also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me just say publicly before all of you here today that that is what your elders do over you. We rejoice over you because of what we see God doing in you and through you. And that's what Paul is expressing here and in Thessalonica. He's saying the same type of thing. He's saying, look, I, I am rejoicing over you as a church, as a body. And that's what we want to do as your elders as well. We want you to know that we do rejoice over you. We rejoice over you constantly because we see God working in special ways through you 
in this church and in this community. And I think that we all would agree that we believe that God is evidently doing that. He's doing it in a way that it's manifest. He's working in your lives and he's working in your labors here in Ada and the surrounding areas. And we are thankful for that. And we constantly find ourselves amazed at the work that God is doing through you both corporately and individually. And so today, as a means of encouragement, this is what this message is focused on. It's encouraging you, okay? I want to encourage you, and I want to do that by, by showing you what we as elders see going on in you that God is doing through you, okay? And, and why we as elders give thanks for you. And I want to do that in a really weird way, and it sounds scary when I say it. We're going to survey two chapters in the book of Acts. I'm not going to exposit two chapters because that's impossible for me. I do good to do two verses, But we're going to go through two chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 13 and 14. And and as you'll see, as we go along through here, that the reason I want to do that is because I think that your lives as a congregation, your lives and your labors reflect or emulate or imitate the ministry of the faithful men in this historical narrative in this section of Scripture. And that's what Paul's rejoicing over in Thessalonica, because those saints are reflecting the ministry that he had brought to them. And it was echoing throughout the land. And he, I think, is one who we can look at as a great example of that personally. Let me give you a little background before I read. And we'll just read through this section as I cover each point this morning. But let, let you kind of grasp what's going on. I have to give you this background. Basically, a real simple background of this is. What's happening in 13 and 14 is you're going to see God use Paul and Barnabas in particular, but there's a a group of men with them. You're going to see Paul and Barnabas, though, in particular, evangelizing the weary, the religiously weary, the confused. Okay, you're going to see them correcting those who are in error. And then you're going to see ultimately the establishment of new churches in this area. Through their ministry and it's through the ministry God's doing in them and through them that we see this. And that's that's what I want to convey to you. We see this going on in you and through you. You are evangelizing the weary. You are correcting those in error and you're doing it in a particular way, which I think is highly important, which I'll touch on. in one of the points you're doing it compassionately because you know where you have came from. And then as a result, we're seeing this church established and possibly other churches in the future through your ministry. But what's going on here is they're going throughout the areas of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and then they're persecuted to the point of going to Derby, where they continue doing this work. Now, you need to understand these were very dark and difficult cities for the gospel to penetrate. There was a a wall of, of darkness, if you will, surrounding these pagan nations, these pagan areas, rather. And they're going to go into these places armed with only one thing. The word of God and the gospel of Christ. And you're going to see amazing things happening through that. And that's what I want to convey to you. You do not have to be a super Christian. You do not have to be a super church All you need to be is armed with the word of God and be faithful to handle it correctly. And God can open up the dark areas and bring light through you. Now, you're going to see as we go through this that their their labor, their their lives, their ministry is fueled nothing by nothing other than the word of God. It's fueled and it's driven by their faithful proclamation of God's word. And that's the key point that we'll see continually through this section. And and what we need to understand as a church is that our ministry, 
our love and our labors have to also be fueled and directed by the word of God. And I want you to know that we see evidence of that in you. We see evidence of God's word at work in your lives personally and corporately and in your labors personally and corporately. We see that it's fueling your work that you do. And we rejoice in that. And I want you to rejoice with me this morning over that work that you'll see reflected out of Acts 13 and 14. Now, go go with me to Acts 13. And we're going to just kind of jump down in the middle here to verse 13. And don't freak out. We're going to read down to verse 39 in a few moments. This is one section. All right. Um, I, I want you to rejoice, though, with me over this, because what, what you're seeing here, I think, is a great mirror image of what we see happening through you and in you. And here what we see is, is the Apostle Paul and his companions going out with a great desire. And, and we can see this desire in this congregation. And we're thankful for that. We can see your desire to do what they're doing here. Understand, here's what they're doing. Here's your big, long first point. They are going out to encourage the religiously weary souls around them. And I think that you reflect that as well. And you want to do it the way Paul did it. And here's how he did it. He did it by holding fast to God's word evangelistically and compassionately. Sometimes when we read some of these sections, we'll read this in a moment. Sometimes we read some of these sections and Paul comes into a hardened place or he comes into a place that's steeped in religiosity. And he comes in and he comes in and he says words that you know are going to penetrate their hearts and make them sting a little bit. But you need to read this carefully because his motive isn't there to sting them. His motive is there to love them and lead them to Jesus to find rest for their weary souls that cannot be satisfied in this legalism and this paganism that's in this community. Look at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. There's the famous departure of John Mark. Okay, so he sort of had a guy bail out on him at that point. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to a synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, speaking to them as Jewish brethren in that sense, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, this was a typical tradition when when a teacher would come into town, they would come to the synagogue, they would allow that teacher that day to, if you will, impromptu come forward and read from the word and and preach. And so the Apostle Paul, obviously eager to do this, jumps forward. Now, he's not eager to just rebuke them. That's what I, I want you to understand. And here's why I say that. We all go through what we call a cage stage sometimes. When we come to the doctrines of grace and we do simply want to go out and win debates. But there comes a point in your walk with Christ and in your maturity, you begin to see, you know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't know anything. And when I go out now, I don't want to go out to win debates. I want to go out to lead people to Christ. He can change their hearts. Paul jumps forward to do that, not to crush his enemies, but to show compassion through his evangelism. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen 
the God of this people, Israel. Now, he, he's speaking in terms that are very re- relatable to the Jewish people there. And, and notice even verse 16. This is my points later, but this is so important. He doesn't jump up and say, all you bad people, you religious hypocrites. He gets up and says, come here, guys. I want to tell you something. He motions with his hands. This is a this is an act of endearment, of affection, of concern. He's drawing them in physically, and then he's going to draw them to Christ spiritually. He says, the God of this people, verse 17 chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. Now he's, he's pointing out some very obvious works of God that should encourage these people. And then he's going to move from this to a, a really special revelation as we get further down here. But he says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And they know the story, a bunch of moaning and whining going on in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. In spite of their moaning and complaining, God still blessed them because he'd given them a covenant promise. So he's he's paving the way to the gospel by saying he's a covenant keeping God. He is faithful to those that he calls out of darkness and into the light. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring. Oh, it's just getting better. He's building on this of this man's offspring. David's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. He's he's given them this this story, this narrative. God keeps his promises through David, the one that God had always promised from Genesis 315. He has came. Jesus, who is the rescuer of those who are lost in this religious traditionalism. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was, was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose? Who, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Notice verse 26, the phrase. Brothers, he doesn't say hypocrites. He doesn't say you foolish men. He says, brothers, this is a sign of affection. He loves these men he's witnessing to sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Those are the proselytes who came into Judaism to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him Or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. I think he's referring to Isaiah 53. When all that was done, all that took place fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, the suffering Servant would come. He says, but God, in verse 30, raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as far as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption that he has spoken in this way. I will give you the Holy One or the Holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption for David. After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. There was no sin in him to corrupt his body. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. These were religiously weary people trying to please God in their own efforts, by their own works, by their traditions. And Paul has just taken them with compassion through the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus, saying, this is the one who will set you free. He's not doing this with animosity. He's not doing this with anger. He's doing this with compassion. He's showing the mercy of Christ at work in him the way he evangelizes them. His words and his actions, even his motions of his hands and his words that he uses, those are shaped by the compassion of Christ at work in him for these men. Because some of these men will come to believe in Jesus. Some of these men God has called effectually from before the foundation of the earth to come and they will come when they hear the gospel, the good news proclaimed to them. What I want you to to grasp on that and think about is this. God, God calls us and I see this happening with you, the way you're doing this, but he calls us to sow his word. That's what we're called to do. We're just we're just farmers in that sense. We just cast the seed. We can't make it grow. We can't do anything else other than be faithful to do what God's called us to do. We sow the word. But how we sow the word is also very important. We are to sow it in love. If, if you cannot look at the person that you're sharing the gospel with and actually have genuine compassion and mercy in your heart for them, there's something wrong with you. Because apart from the grace of God, you would be lost. And when you look at another person who is lost, either in this kind of religious weariness, traditionalism, or some other sort of pagan religion ideology, you should look at them with compassion And you should want to sow the word, sow the truth, cast the seed lovingly and compassionately, because that is what God has shown you, his love and his compassion through that message. And I think that's happening with this congregation. I think that's the way you've been ministering. We can still excel in it. I know that personally. I know I can do much better at that. But we can see here that this is something we want to reflect, that we do reflect at times. We actually see that happening in the way you have even social media engagements. When there's debates on there. When you can do that with love and compassion for the person you're debating, 
It's obvious to everyone. And when you're not loving and compassionate, it's also obvious to everyone. And it brings reproach on Jesus Christ. And I would call you in Christ's name to stop that. It's a poor reflection of the grace of God that you've received. But you can see that, it, that this is what's driving Paul. It's, it's, he's got a message. He's got the gospel. He has been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of God's son, into the light. And he now wants to go into the darkness with compassion to bring as many people out as possible. And he doesn't use any other tool, any other methods than preaching the gospel. This was Paul's mission. This is the great commission that Christ gave him and gave to us. But it was driven, as you'll see in this text, it's going to be driven by God's word and it's going to be accompanied with Christ's compassion. He was proclaiming God's promise of rest that would only be found in Jesus to the religiously lost. And he was doing it out of love. It was true affection Not just for Jesus, which that's the primary reason we do it, but also for the people we evangelize, the people we minister to. We should love them. And here's what's great. I've heard multiple conversations from multiple people in this congregation, and I can hear you talking about people you have engaged in the gospel conversation that brings God glory. And I can also see the tears in your eyes or the hurt in your Emotions, your heart, your mouth, your words that tell me that you have great compassion for them. And I think in that way, you're reflecting what we see the Apostle Paul doing in this section of Scripture. I see you reflecting in the way you evangelize and and that causes us as your pastors to rejoice over you. And we want you to rejoice with us in that by being aware that we see it and that we want to help you excel still more in that. I think there's evidence of that in this congregation. There's evidence because there are people in this congregation that are here because you did that. There's one guy here that unbeknownst to him for years after coming to the doctrines of grace, he just loved the truth so much. He just began to tell all his friends. Well, they didn't really, you know, find it all appealing yet over time because his love for them was also accompanied with this gospel message, this truth. Those people have came to understand those truths that that exalt Christ's name, that help us to see the purpose of our lives. And many of those people that he has influenced are now part of the church that's gathered here with us this morning. So we see evidence in our church and the people that you minister to and in the community around us that you are trying to help people out of compassion to find rest in Christ. And I think that you're doing that because you're being faithful to Christ's commission. And you're evidently showing his kind of compassion when you do it. And for that, we rejoice and you should rejoice with us this morning. Now, secondly, I want you to rejoice with me because of what we're going to see here in Acts thirteen forty to 52. Because I can see that, that you not only desire to do this evangelistically and compassionately, but I also can see that you, you want to. Do this out of a longing in your heart. You have a longing not just to to tell the the weary that there's hope. You have a longing to work with them in the future. You have a longing to enlighten them, to walk beside them, even in the darkness. You have a longing to enlighten the darkened hearts around you the way that the Apostle Paul did by holding fast to God's word, not just evangelistically and compassionately, but also doing it confidently. And boldly, that's why you come and you hear the word preached here and taught here. You want that so you can go out with confidence and with assurance, boldness, not arrogance, because your confidence and your boldness is shaped by the compassion of Christ. 
and you want to go out and you long to be able to help people see the light of the gospel of Christ and then work with them when they come to the doctrines of grace and when they come to the gospel of salvation and you want to stay beside them. But you have the confidence to go out to places where no one wants to go and you have the boldness to use God's word and preach to those who are in darkness, knowing that this is the only way they're coming out. There's no other way. I can't trick them out. I can't friend them out. I can't do anything but preach the gospel to see God draw them out. God has to open their eyes. Look with me at Acts there, 13, 40 to 52. This is how Paul did it. He, he went with great confidence in God's word, with great boldness, and he went and proclaimed God's revelation of grace. And notice this. He didn't just pick a demographic group. I can only reach bearded guys. Right. I can only reach bald guys. I can only reach ag teachers. That's not what he did. He went to all types of sinners because the gospel transcends culture. And he goes into every type of culture with one method, one message that's given to him by God in his word. That was his only tool. And that was all that was needed to reach the heart of. Of here in this section, moralistic Jews and paganistic Gentiles. In this section, what we'll look at is basically you have to see Paul. He's going out into this area where there's some people he's familiar with, some people he's not as familiar with. Yet he's going with one instrument, the instrument of God's grace, which is his word. And he's going to call those who are in sin out. He's going to call out error in others. And he's going to confront all kinds of pride and sin that's going on in their hearts. And he knew that he could do that. He knew it would be costly to do that because they crucified our Lord for doing that. But he did it anyway with confidence because he knew his confidence was not in his ability to speak. It wasn't in his great presentation. His confidence was in God's word to do what he couldn't do. God would take that word and open their eyes to see their sin, to confront their pride point out the error that has misled them. And not only that, he knew that only the word of God could give them hope and final rest. And so he went out with great boldness, proclaiming the gospel. And church, that is what we are doing. And I see that happening. You don't have to be an expert on every problem in the world to do this. And you guys, we have a a great diverse congregation here. And I see you crossing cultures, crossing comfort zones, if you will, to say the same things that Paul's going to say here with confidence that only God can do this. But God does do this. He takes his word and he opens the hearts and the minds of the unregenerate to give them hope in Christ. And I want you to understand that we see that in you and we have confidence that you're going to continue to do that. And we all should have confidence because it's God's word that can and will draw sinners out of darkness. And it's God's word that will pierce the hardest of hearts. And we all give testimony to that ourselves if we're believers. He did that for us through his word. Sure, you can remember the, the person who shared the gospel with you probably when you came to faith in Christ. Or you can remember the church or the sermons that you heard. But ultimately, it was God who took the word And illuminated your dead and depraved heart to see it, receive it and repent and look to Christ as your only hope. That was Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence was in the power of God's word. Look what it says. Verse 40. 
Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. What what an amazing and surprising response. Wow, you, you can't go to this culture and preach a straight, direct gospel because people will be offended. They won't they won't come back. But he's about to rebuke them out of compassion. And what they're saying is we want more. The word of God has done something in their hearts. The word of God is at work. They're saying they begged him to come back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, it's amazing to me. He's, he's going into a culture that he knows is going to be hostile to him. He's preaching a message he knows will bring persecution And these people are urging him, begging him, coming to him, saying, we want more. Tell us more of this grace. We should have this kind of confidence in whatever cultural setting we're in. We should understand that God works through his word, not through our methods. We need to be faithful. And I see that happening in this congregation. And that makes me joyful. You are trusting in the word of God to do the work of the ministry. In the hearts of unbelievers. Look what it says in verse um, 45. Again, some of the Jews, it says, saw the crowds. They were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying, not Paul, not their methods, not their ideas, but they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and their leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And here's Paul's response. But they shook or shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. He just kept moving on. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of God was at work. There were some who were jealous because of what they saw God doing that was threatening their system. But Paul says, I don't I don't worry myself with your jealousy. I don't worry myself with your opposition. I'm going to continue. If I can't do it here, I'll go to the next city. This gospel can't be stopped. And I'm the messenger of Christ and nothing's going to stop me but death. And so he continues on. And he continued on because he knew that only God's word could give them rest for their weary souls. Only God's word could give them rest. And only God's word had the power in itself, dunamai, dunamis, inherent power to transform the hardest of men like the apostle himself and us 
to transform us into merciful witnesses of Christ. That's the only explanation for Paul's conversion. The power of the word of God he heard preached from Stephen as he stood there in approval as Stephen is being stoned to death as a witness for Christ. That word did not escape the Apostle Paul's heart. God used that word to open his eyes on the road to Damascus and make him a merciful witness. And now he's going out. And and every Christian here knows exactly the kind of confidence he has if you really think about it. Because you know experientially that it was the word of God that transformed you from the inside out. That's why you can proclaim it with confidence today. That's why you do proclaim it with confidence. You know experientially that the the scalpel of God's word, as Hebrews is going to point out, I won't read that to you this morning, but in Hebrews, the scalpel of God's word is going to tell us is, is, is at work penetrating in places and in ways that we cannot penetrate. It's the gospel that's being used to plunge into the hardest of hearts and the deepest recesses of self-righteousness to expose sin and cut away stony hearts and to bring in place of that the heart of Christ. It's open heart surgery by the word. He's giving us what we can't get on our own. It's an amazing tool God has given to us. His word has the ability to, to cut, to cut out the stony heart, to expose sin and yet heal in its wake. And he heals us by giving us the very heart of Christ. And that should give us great confidence when we do evangelism, when we do ministry in general in dark places. And we see that in you. We see that happening through you. So rejoice with me because I see this testimony in your life. And I see it in the way that you express confidence in God's word. I I love these these messages we get either through social media or through text messages or phone calls congregation members calling saying, hey, I got into a conversation with this person and here's what I said from the word of God. And how does the word of God explain this? And what, what, what do we look at here in this text to, to point this out to this person? They're going there for their source of authority. They're going there with confidence, knowing it's going to be God's word that's going to change the heart of this darkened person. That's something to rejoice in this morning. Rejoice in this, that, that we see God making you. Bold and eager witnesses, you're you're bold to stand forth for the truth, stand forth in God's word in the truth at work when you do street evangelism, when you are online. But not only are you bold and eager, you are also merciful, you're merciful instruments of grace. We see that through your lives, through your ministry here in this church, through the nursing home ministries, through the ministry to your neighbors and to your friends. You have this this desire to balance these things. You have a longing to be a bold, confident witness who comes across like Christ. And for that, you should rejoice. And we rejoice in that because we see in that that you you understand that it's the word of God that will pierce the darkness. But God's word works through you as his instruments. He works through your compassion that was Paul's longing there in Acts 13, 40 to 52. Paul was compassionately and faithfully longing to proclaim the truth. But when you see this text, understand what follows isn't easy. To have confidence and boldness in the face of opposition is never easy. These people, his own people, would reject him. His own family would deny him. And eventually they would try to kill him. They will stone him. You'll see at the end of this passage when we're through. And so you need to understand. There is going to be a great cost in your boldness. There's going to be a great price that we pay 
If you stand without compromise, you will be persecuted if you live godly in Christ Jesus. But even though Paul knew that, it didn't stop him from going on and speaking the truth. It wasn't easy for Paul, and it won't be easy for us either. We are sent by God into this dark world. We are sent by God to face God's enemies. We are sent to live among them, to shine the light of truth on them, to reveal God's promises in Christ by proclaiming the word of God with confidence and with compassion for his glory. And as the Apostle Paul will say in Timothy, for the sake of the elect, for those that God will appoint unto eternal life and bring to Christ, we go into the darkness with confidence, with compassion, because that's the commission we've been given And we see that reflected in your own lives and your ministry. And we give thanks. We rejoice in that. And that's why when you look at the next section we'll look at here in Acts 14, 1 to 20. Paul did not let this opposition allow him to compromise what he was called to do. Look what it says. Verses 1 to 20. Now, Iconium, even though he'd just been ran out. Okay, he was ran out of town. And he says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue And spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Wow. I mean, okay, if this is Ronnie and and Paul and Justin and I, and we go to one town and we're sharing the gospel and everybody attacks us, I don't know that any of us are going to say, hey, let's go to the next town and try this again. We might want to say, yeah, maybe we need to take a break for for a while and rethink what we're we're doing here. Um, Maybe we wouldn't, but I think we probably would. But not Paul. Paul says, no, I'm going to go to the next town. I'm going to do the exact same thing I just did. But look what God did through that persecution, through the opposition. Paul's confidence was in this. God is sovereign. If persecution comes as a result of our boldness and our compassion, God's opening another door for the gospel. There's a great number of both Jews and Greeks who believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There's there's the enemy among us, right? Those that we will come in contact with. So they remain for a long time. (laughs) All right. That doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. So these these enemies came up and poisoned the mind of everybody around. So they they decided, let's just stay here longer. Nobody likes us. Nobody likes this message. Let's just stay longer. His confidence was not in his ability to win these people. His confidence was going to be this is God's providential place for me to be and speak the truth. So they remained for a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. All right. They finally had to leave. They were finally ran out, but they didn't stop. They continued to compassionately and boldly and confidently preach the gospel because they knew that in that people would come to faith in Christ. He would be exalted and they would be redeemed. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, 
They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas was called Zeus. This is the great God of all the gods. And Paul Hermes, the great messenger of God. We get the word hermeneutics from Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But Paul didn't compromise. If this if this would have happened today in many places, they were like, hey, we finally have a crowd. We can finally get a hearing. Let's just pretend. Let's just go along. The world loves us. Let's do what the world wants. And we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get a few people to believe. But that's not what he does. He says, may it never be. Right? Look what he says in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard their misunderstanding, right? They were confused because of all this power. They thought that these gods who had came in the past, supposedly, and shown up and cursed the people, they thought these gods had showed up again in disguise this time, and they better receive them. He says, whoa, whoa, don't get us confused here. So they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Don't you love that? He, he, he extinguishes their false understanding. And then he comes along and says, but, but you got to listen. The message we have, this is amazing. More amazing than Zeus and Hermes showing up. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. Implied, those gods aren't alive. The one who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, he's alive. And then he says, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk on their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and the fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to him. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day. He went on with Barnabas to Derby. So, so these people, they, they were confused. And he says, don't be confused. Let me tell you the good news. Let me tell you what, what we're actually here to do, to point you to Christ. And with great confidence in the face of what could turn into a really ugly mob, he says, by the way, your gods are dead. And you need to turn. You need to repent. And you need to look to the only and living God. Look to him, the one who made heaven and earth and who provides for you life and sustenance. He is the one you need to turn to. He uses common grace to point out there is a God who reigns over all things. And you need to turn to him. He didn't compromise his message in this situation. He stood firmly. Even when this opposition would rise up at the end here and begin to attack him physically, the Jews who were now jealous because even these pagans were now wanting to listen to Paul. When that opposition rose up, he, he didn't get discouraged. He continued on. He just continues on preaching and being persecuted, but he's doing it because he has confidence in God's word to work even through his weakness, to work even through these these opposing factors that come against him. And what I want you to understand in that is, is he didn't let this opposition lead to him to, to compromise. And, and, and I don't see you doing that either. I see you standing firm. 
But understand, it's hard when you are being firm, when you're standing for the truth and you're preaching and suffering comes as a result of it. But in this, you should rejoice when you respond like the Apostle Paul does in verse 20. He rose up after he had been stoned and drug out of the city. He rose up and continued doing what God had called him to do. You should not be discouraged when opposition raises up against you, when you still desire to stand up and go back to it. When you are persecuted and you desire to do nothing more than to recover from that and go back to doing what God had called you to do that brought the persecution on you, you should rejoice in that. Don't be discouraged by that opposition. Instead of being discouraged or doubting what God's doing here, rejoice. Rejoice because basically if you want to get up and do this, it's because you want to magnify Christ more than yourself. You want to reach the lost more than you want to protect yourself. And when you do that, you are revealing God's work through his word in your hearts, in your lives. Because you're reflecting the very heart of Christ who left heaven's glory to come to this earth to be persecuted, to suffer for us and yet rise to give us hope and rest. And I've seen you do that here as a church. I've seen you be willing to face persecution. And I want you to know something as a result of you. And you may think, I don't do this a lot. You know what? You may do it a lot, even in your own homes and not realize it. When you're speaking the truth and you're standing firm on the word and people will rise up against you, family members will reject you. But I want you to know something. When you're doing that, you're becoming beacons of hope, lighthouses of hope in a dark world. And you need to know what Paul knew. That light cannot be put out. They can take your lights out, but they're not going to put that light out. Your labor in God's word is inextinguishable. You are shining the light of God's truth and his grace into the darkness around you. And God will use that to lead them out of the darkness through your compassion, through your boldness, even if you suffer for it. So even if you suffer and even die in this labor, do not be discouraged. Even if you suffer and maybe you don't even see immediate fruit from your labor, do not be discouraged. Do not fret. Do not grow weary because Christ is there with you carrying this burden. He hasn't left you. He's not going to forsake you. God is at work through your faithfulness. God is at work through your boldness. God is at work through your suffering To make you a witness of his word. And that word will be unstoppable. It will accomplish the work that God intended. And it will never ever be wasted. Church if you you don't see fruit. And there are many times you can do a lot of ministry and not see fruit. Don't be discouraged. You may not see the fruit of your labor. Until you are buried under it. But be assured. Our compassion, our confidence, our faithfulness to Christ and his word in all this will not be wasted. Because the living and abiding word that God planted in you at regeneration was put there by him to do one thing, to bear fruit that would nourish others and magnify the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not one faithful, compassionate word will be wasted no matter how much we suffer, no matter how much fruit we see or don't see. That's why, lastly, that I want to encourage you to do this, to rejoice with me, because like the Apostle Paul, Sovereign Grace, we can see that you are willing to do that. You're willing to endure persecution. Yes, we need to encourage you in the midst of it. 
But you're willing to do it for this reason. You're willing to endure persecution personally and even corporately to reach the lost, to magnify Christ to others who are hurting and misled. And you're desiring to do this, willing to do this the way that the Apostle Paul did it, by holding fast to God's word faithfully and without compromise. And I can see you doing that because it's obvious. You're even here this morning desiring to be fed and nourished in the truth so you can share it with others. Look at verse 21 of chapter 14. You can see that Paul faithfully, without compromise, held fast to the word by proclaiming and displaying and sharing the gospel because he had a great love for Jesus, obviously. And he believed that serving Jesus and God's people was worth living, suffering and dying for. And I believe that you feel the same way. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. What? That's the first place they were ran out of. You mean after all this persecution, after all this opposition, after all these difficulties, after the stoning, they go back to the very place where it all started and to Iconium and to Antioch. Why? Because they had a love for Jesus and a love for his people. And it was worth living and dying for. They went there to strengthen the souls of the disciples, those who had came to faith through the preaching of the word and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had arrived, when they'd been there, it says when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They believed this word was effectual. So they were willing to go back and even suffer it all over again because they knew that God would bring his people into the kingdom through the preaching of the word. And they would be nourished continually by that word to go out and do the same work he was doing. Paul believed that he could risk his own life and it wouldn't be a risk. We're all immortal until God calls us home. Paul knew that. If we knew we would not die, we would have greater confidence when we go out and risk things for the gospel, for the name of Christ. Paul knew that he knew that he could risk his own life, but he did it because he had great compassion for the lost, because he wanted to exalt Christ and his work in his life. And he wanted to edify the saints. And he knew the only way to do that was by continually preaching the word of truth to them, the gospel that God has given us in his word. He believed that God would use his word to glorify his son and rescue the lost and then build a church. That's why I think that he believed that it was worth living and suffering and, and dying. He wanted to see Christ exalted. He wanted to see the church edified. He wanted to see people come to Christ through the church's work on earth. Look with me lastly. Eh, not lastly. Second Corinthians chapter four, I think, reflects the Apostle Paul's heart. And I think the heart of all of you here this morning that have trusted in Christ. This is what Paul desired, longed for, that caused him to suffer and die even eventually. Yet he knew God's word would work through this and he would be glorified on earth. And that was his greatest desire of all. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
It's not our ability. It's God's word at work in us. We're just you know, jars of clay were terracotta pots and they were they were riddled with flaws. When you make them in the, in the kiln, they, they're riddled with flaws and they've got cracks in them. You can't see them. But when you put a candle inside of them, the light will shine through the cracks. And a terracotta pot was used for things like privy pots. It was not glamorous. He says, we're, we're nothing. But God put this light in us to show the surpassing power of the work that we do belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. They would see the work of Christ in us and through us, even though we're suffering for it. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He's saying we go through all of this being persecuted, suffering for your sake and for the glory of God. And it's worth it. That's what he's going to say. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension, all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He had an eternal perspective and he was willing to live and suffer and die because of this eternal perspective that he received in God's word. That's what drove his ministry. So it drove him into the face of suffering. And, and this is what will drive us into the future of our ministry here in Ada. We have to have great compassion that reflects Christ. We have to have great confidence in God's word to work through clay pots. And then, by God's grace, give us strength to go through the opposition, through the persecution that comes against us. But I want you to know that I believe that you desire that. I believe that's why you're here. I believe that is why you should rejoice with me this morning with all your elders, because your belief and your desire in what Paul's talking about here is evident in your lives. It's evident to us. Let me sort of paraphrase what I read in Philippians to you in a different way. We as your elders see that you are holding fast to the word of life and saints, your elders will be proud that we did not run in vain or labor in vain on the last day. Even if we, as your elders, are poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, we are glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with us. I want you to do that this morning because God is at work in this church. We have much to rejoice in. The work of God, the, the immortal, the sovereign, the omnipotent. He is at work in you and through you. And it's becoming evident in this community. It's evident in this congregation. You are an amazing blessing from God.
We rejoice in that. But you should rejoice in it, too, because this is God at work. We have no idea what the future holds for us as a church, but we know who holds the future of our church. And we know he has a divine purpose for us here in this community. We should rejoice in that because he is going to use compassionate, confident and fearless witnesses that trust in his word to do this work in Ada. Let me pray with you. And then we have one more thing to do this morning that you can rejoice in with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence we have in your all-sufficient, inerrant, perfect, and healing truth that you've given to us through the gospel of Christ and throughout Genesis to Revelation. We trust in that to be our instrument to use in ministry. We pray that you would help us to faithfully wield that, to confidently use that and show compassion as we do so. And I pray, God, that you, when the opposition comes, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and prepare us to see this from an eternal perspective, to see that you are going to work even through our suffering to bring many souls to salvation and edify the weary around us. We thank you for all these things and rejoice in your name, Jesus. Amen.